FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. In 1965, Reverend James Reeb was attacked on a street in Selma, Alabama. I understand one was uh, so brutally beaten that he had to be rushed to the hospital in Birmingham with a possible brain concussion. The white Unitarian minister from Boston died two days later as murder sparked protests around the nation and gave President Johnson another reason to introduce a voting rights bill to Congress. Many were brutally assaulted. One good man, a man of God, was killed. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, the co-hosts of NPR's White Lies podcast tell us why Jim Reeb's death was never solved and what they found reporting on the cold case in Selma today. Plus, how does your zip code affect your health? Just one question the CDC answers this season on its Contagious Conversations podcast. Coming up, first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A federal appeals court is considering reversing a lower court's ruling about the citizenship question the Trump administration wants to add to the 2020 census. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports a new court ruling could put an additional block on the administration's plans to include the question. The question, is this person a citizen of the United States, has already been blocked by three federal judges, and the Supreme Court is expected to weigh in soon on whether the question can go forward. But Thomas Sines of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund has asked the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals to review an issue that has not been argued before the Supreme Court. Whatever the Supreme Court decides, the Fourth Circuit could decide that the question must be removed because it was unconstitutionally motivated by racial discrimination. The administration says it wants to better protect the voting rights of racial minorities. But science points to newly released documents suggesting the question was added to politically benefit non-Hispanic white people. Hansi Luang, NPR News. The United States is moving to limit Chinese companies' access to American technology. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports now China is responding by creating what it calls a new system to act as a firewall to protect its own technology. The mouthpiece of the ruling Communist Party vowed China would never allow certain countries to use its technology to contain China's development and suppress Chinese enterprises. No details about the proposed system have been released. The initiative follows U.S. moves to restrict sales to Huawei and other Chinese tech firms on national security grounds. The U.S. Commerce Department last month added Huawei to its list of entities that are engaged in activities contrary to U.S. national security or foreign policy interests. As a result, any sale of U.S. technology to Huawei will require Commerce Department approval. China responded by vowing to develop its own list of foreign entities it regards as unreliable. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said he had a candid discussion with the head of China's central bank at a G20 finance meeting in Japan. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Shanghai. Former Boston Red Sox slugger David Ortiz was shot at close range last night in his native Dominican Republic. He was ambushed at a Santo Domingo bar. From member station WBUR in Boston, Shira Springer reports he's since been hospitalized. Ortiz underwent surgery for a bullet wound to his lower back and abdomen area. After the surgery, his father spoke to reporters and said that Ortiz was out of danger and that the bullet didn't damage any major organs. Ortiz, also known as Big Poppy, is a beloved figure in the Dominican Republic and in Boston. 
He helped lead the Red Sox to three World Series titles. The Red Sox released a statement saying that the team has offered Ortiz all available resources to help his recovery. Shira Springer reporting. You're listening to NPR News. President Trump is warning Mexico that even though there's a new accord on migration, he could still impose tariffs on Mexican goods. He says he doesn't think that's necessary. Although tariffs are paid for by Americans, Trump is tweeting that they are profitable. Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif is warning the U.S. to stop what he calls its economic war against Iran. During an appearance with the German Foreign Minister, Zarif blamed President Trump for increasing tensions in the region. Terry Schultz reports. Germany's Heiko Maas was in Tehran trying to reduce rising hostility between Iran and the West and to keep the regime on board the nuclear agreement, which Washington quit last year, reimposing sanctions. But after their meeting, Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif was stark. He said the U.S., quote, cannot expect to stay safe if it continues squeezing Iran financially. Whoever starts a war with us will not be the one who finishes it, Zarif said. Moss says European countries continue work on the special financial exchange mechanism they're setting up to trade with Tehran and evade U.S. sanctions. But progress is slow. In the meantime, Moss urges continued dialogue in what he called a highly explosive situation where escalation of current tensions could lead to a military escalation. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. Officials in Dallas say they have searched all accessible rooms in an apartment building that was struck on Sunday by a falling crane. The collapse killed one person and injured five others, two of them critically. The crane fell during a powerful storm that also knocked down trees in the Dallas area. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Viking dedicated to bringing the traveler closer to the destination. Viking's new custom-built ocean fleet offers a small ship experience with all veranda staterooms and shore excursions in every port. vikingcruises.com. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is headquartered in Atlanta. The CDC may not be top of mind until there's an outbreak of some infectious disease or images of scientists in hazmat suits in the news. But the work of health leaders and innovators goes on outside of headline-level crises. Who are these figures advocating for public health, and what are the important causes that they're addressing? Well, one podcast brings those discussions out of CDC labs and conference rooms. So as health secretary, I'm sure you are confronted with a myriad of health issues that citizens and politicians want you to address. How do you prioritize these, and how does data factor into those decisions? The CDC Foundation's podcast, Contagious Conversations, recently launched its second season. Claire Stinson, you heard there, is host, and she joins me now in the studio. Claire, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So you're Senior Communications Officer for the CDC Foundation. How is the foundation different from the federal agency, the CDC? That's a really good question. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is a federal agency that protects America from health threats. The CDC Foundation is an independent nonprofit that really was created by Congress to support and extend the life-saving work of CDC through public-private partnerships. Okay, so the CDC proper also does a number of podcasts about a variety of topics, you know, threat of mosquitoes, dangers of high sodium intake. Mm -hmm. What do you do that's different? 
So we really wanted to provide a forum to have some really interesting conversations with health leaders and gain per- so our audience could gain perspective on their backstory, their career path, how they became the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, and why their work is so important because they're making the, worth, the world healthier and safer for us all. So you've covered a lot of right, uh, topics, social issues that affect everyone to specific diseases like polio. Mm-hmm. How do you pick the issues and people that you feature in the podcast? So we really wanted to choose thought-provoking guests. Uh, we wanted to interview people that had an, a really interesting career path. And they really are the health leaders that are really working to make this pl- this world a healthier place. So we knew Maren McKenna well in Atlanta. She's an investigative journalist that co- covers health topics here in Atlanta. Um, Dr. Lex Frieden is considered the architect of the Americans with Disabilities Act with a truly inspiring backstory. Um, We have the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Dr. Sue Desmond Hellman. These are really inspiring people, and it's been an honor to interview them, honestly. Well, let's get a little sense of that. Your guests are often leaders in the public health sector, as you mentioned. Season one, you spoke with Lex Frieden, architect of the Americans for Disabilities Act, as you mentioned. In this current season, you spoke with Dr. Rebecca Gee. She's secretary of the Louisiana Department of Health. Let's hear a little. Hepatitis C kills more Americans than all other infectious diseases combined. And so as a public health challenge, really nothing is as significant as hepatitis C in our time. Also, hepatitis C has a cure. Unlike the common cold or HIV, we actually have a cure for hepatitis C. Dr. Gee said that she has the goal to change the cost equation for her state and, and reach universal cure. Certainly a noble goal. Why highlight this effort? She's really proud of this effort in Louisiana, and she really wanted to explain why it is so important in her state and really for the country. And she's done so much to impact the health of Louisianians, and it was really inspiring to talk to her. It's a really expensive drug that is used to treat hepatitis C. So mm-hmm. how is she going to make that work? How does she propose? She really wants to work with a lot of different people to work on the cost equation there. She talks a little bit more about it in the podcast, and I would defer to her on that. But I, I do think she has a really inspiring um, career path and backstory, and she has been both a patient and a caregiver, and she really brings both of those roles to everything she does in her work in Louisiana. It's an ambitious goal. How about uh, some of the boldest healthcare policy conversations you've heard of during your time creating the podcast. Anything come to mind? Mm, well, I've interviewed some really inspiring people that had a lot of ambitious goals. Dr. Rich Besser, CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, said he wants to change the world. And he's had that goal since he was in um, medical school. So I, I really, it's been fascinating to interview all of these amazing people. Let's hear a little bit of your conversation with Dr. Rich Besser. People have to make healthy choices But oftentimes we don't reflect on the fact that for many people, they don't have healthy choices. And the the choices that we make so much depend on on the choices that we have. And we want to make sure that that everyone has those healthy choices to make. That's a big conversation there. You know, obviously policy can do so much. But what kind of steps are being taken to bridge health inequality gaps? The kind of things he's talking about that you don't even have those choices. So he, Dr. Besser makes a point of talking about the fact that um, social justice is a really important goal for him. Uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is working to build a culture of health in America. He really gets into that in his episode. And he talks about in his episode that healthy choices are important, but you have to have those choices available to you. Who is the audience you're trying to reach here? 
So we are trying to reach anyone that has an interest in public health, really, but students have been a really important audience for us because I ask almost every single one of my guests what advice they have for future public health leaders of America. So honestly, if you're a student out there and you're interested in public health, I would suggest listening to Contagious Conversations because these are the leaders in public health that are providing some really inspiring advice. Any of those bits of advice stick out for you? Yes. Uh, Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman, who is the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, she works for Bill Gates, said never stop learning. Hmm. And to me, that resonates. Good advice for all of us. Yes. So how can ordinary people, though, without medical degrees, advocate for public health? I mean, does that podcast provide that kind of insight or action items for listeners? I don't think it's as much about the action items as it is just a better understanding of what people are doing in our world to improve public health. Public health is the science of improving and protecting people's lives and health at the community level. And that what an inspiring goal for anyone to learn about. Um, so honestly, and we say at the CDC Foundation that public health connects us all. I'm speaking with Claire Stinson, host of Contagious Conversations. It's a podcast from the CDC Foundation. Season two of the podcast just launched. Claire, you asked your audience what public health means to them in the How to Truly Change the World episode. What kind of responses did you get from them? We got some interesting responses. Uh, Public health means something different to everyone. A lot of people don't really understand what it is, Mm -hmm. to be honest. But the responses we got were inspiring because they were at a personal level. Um, I think Dr. Besser was the one that says that a lot of people don't think about public health until there's a breakdown, until you need access to clean water until you need to be treated for a disease. You know, that's when public health comes into play. It's protecting populations. Um, And that's why I go to work every day, because I have the chance to make an impact on someone's life. So if somebody did ask you, what does public health mean, what would you say? It means really protecting and improving people's health in their everyday lives. It's so important. And the work of CDC is so important. And I'm proud to work for the CDC Foundation that really works to extend CDC's life-saving work. Of course, public health is one thing. But as Dr. Besser hinted, uh, the individual health is one's own own burden to bear or or mission to bear. Social campaigns have provided extremely effective at improving public health, you know, the non-smoking campaigns, for example. But sometimes misinformation spreads easily, too, like those that spread among the anti-vaccination or anti uh, or vaccine hesitant groups. Carol Pandak talks about this in episode six about the fight to end polio. Let's hear. You know, it's interesting because in Pakistan, you know, 95 percent of parents are open to immunizing their children against polio. It's really convincing a smaller population who may have some concerns about the vaccine, figuring out how to reach their children with the vaccine. So she's talking about Pakistan. How about here? How do you hope this podcast will contribute to the conversations about public health and policy? So that's a really important question because it's a timely topic right now in our country. And I think that Carol Pandak does a good job of explaining how it can impact folks at a community level. Um, She talks about community mobilizers in that episode as well and how impactful they are in their communities. Um, And she does talk about vaccine hesitancy. Um, A lot of uh, people don't understand the impact of um, what uh, not getting a vaccine can ha- can mean until they see the disease really play out. Um, and if they don't see it, they may not understand it. I'm thinking that, you know, the things that we hear from the CDC, it's often a report quoting this, you know, there are numbers here. What 
What's the difference in having these kind of conversations and broadcasting numbers? So I don't always think statistics resonate with people as much as stories resonate. People remember stories. And that's really what we're trying to convey in this podcast is the stories behind these inspiring health leaders and how they came to be the CEO of these large organizations or whatever role they may have, or how they're working every day in small and big ways to improve people's health. Well, you do programs at the foundation when it comes to funding and to resources. What can the CDC foundation do that the CDC itself cannot? And why not? That's a good question. So we were created by Congress to mobilize philanthropic resources. So the best example I can give you is during the Ebola outbreak. Mark Zuckerberg decided to give the CDC Foundation $25 million to step in and help provide flexible funding for CDC during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. So the CDC Foundation was able to step in and provide flexible funding when it wasn't available yet. Yeah. So those things could all, um, I suppose, for the CDC agency, the government agency, they have to be really careful about where they're, where they're getting funding from. Absolutely. You know, Facebook may not be the most popular thing on Capitol Hill right at the moment. So what kind of feedback have you heard after a season and now into your second season? We've been really pleased with the response so far. We didn't know what to expect. We've never done a podcast before, and we started from scratch, but we've had thousands of people downloading and listening and subscribing, and we've had a lot of engagement in social media, and it's been really exciting. What do you know about your listenership? Well, I think students have been the surprise mm -hmm. audience for us. Yeah. We really didn't uh, know that they would be a great audience for us. Uh, like I said, it's really anyone interested in public health. Um, but we've reached such a wide variety of people. And like I said, stories resonate with anyone. So I'm, I hope that this podcast provides an inspiring story for anyone willing to listen about public health. How about your own inspiring story? This is the first time you've ever hosted. What, what, what's that been yes. like for you? It's been amazing. I have a background in media relations and communications. I'm usually on the other side of the mic microphone prepping people. So this has been really exciting for me and something I never thought I would be able to do in my career. So uh, always when, you know, when you're doing interviews and there's a publicist there or a communications person prepping somebody, have you often thought like, this is how I would ask that question or this is how I would sure. answer it? Well, how is that happening for you now? I try to get out of my own head <laughs> in that way um, because I am a media relations professional, but um, it's good because I try to take my own advice. So where do you plan to go with it after season two? So we plan to get some more thought-provoking, inspiring guests, and we're still in the initial stages of planning the next season, but we're excited to work on it. Do you have a fantasy guest? Ooh, a uh, fantasy guest. Hmm. You maybe can't name names. <laughs> I would have to think about that, really, honestly. But there's so many amazing, inspiring people that I would love to talk to. Um, no one's coming to mind at the second. Is, but... Has anybody you know that you run into say like, I heard that and it, you know, it really made me think differently? Yes, yes. I've had a lot of people say that the um, advice from Dr. Sue Desmond Hellman um, to never stop learning really resonated because they were like, my goodness, she's the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And if she's still learning, then certainly that can be advice for me as well. So after speaking with these people, you know, hearing from these big thinkers who think on the global level um, and also on the national level, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges for public health? Hmm. I think there are so many diseases on the horizon that I hear about that are pretty scary. Flu 
is something that everybody talks about, uh, no matter what. Um, so many potential outbreaks, and you know, Ebola is still raging in DRC right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the world, I think, CDC says that honestly, an outbreak is only a plane ride away sometimes, and so we really need to be paying attention to what we can do every day All to right, prevent. Then we are going to leave the audience with "Shake That Disease" by Depeche Mode. As we thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Claire Stinson, host of the CDC Foundation's podcast, Contagious Conversations. The second season just launched, and you can look at your favorite podcast purveyor and subscribe. Coming up, NPR's new podcast, White Lies, digs into a cold case in Alabama and unearths some new perspective on how the South remembers Jim Crow. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In 1965, the Reverend James Reeb was attacked on the streets of Selma, Alabama, and savagely beaten. Three white men were arrested today in Selma, Alabama, on charges of assault with intent to murder three white ministers on a downtown street corner in Selma, Alabama, last night. Days later, Reeb died of head injuries in a Birmingham, Alabama hospital. Three men were tried for the murder of the white Unitarian minister from the North, all ultimately acquitted, and no one was ever convicted. More than 50 years later, two journalists from Alabama returned to that cold case and discovered a number of details and a lot about the way that the South remembers Jim Crow. Andrew Beck-Grace is co-host of NPR's White Lies podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hey, how are you? And Chip Brantley is co-host of the podcast as well. They're both joining me from WBHM in Birmingham. Hey, Chip. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, thank you for being with us. Give us a little background on who was James Reeb. James Reeb was a Unitarian minister uh, who came down in March of 1965 after Bloody Sunday. Saw the footage of Bloody Sunday when Alabama state troopers attacked uh, civil rights uh, marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And was just outraged, like many Americans who saw it was outraged. And he um, he came down to Selma a couple of days later to 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 uh, sort of bear witness and to march alongside those those marchers. As you mentioned, while he was in Selma, he was uh, attacked, hit on the head. Uh, he was uh, taken to Birmingham to a hospital, and he died a couple of days later. And his death really just. Uh, was a huge deal in 1965 in March. Uh, the you know the eyes of the nation were already on Selma because of Bloody Sunday, and then this white minister who came down from Boston was attacked and killed, mm. and so just you know his death was was protested around the nation. The president invoked his name uh, when introducing the Voting Rights Act a couple of weeks later, and then as you mentioned, there was a trial later that year, and and uh, three men were acquitted for the crime. Well, we want to go through that. And this was just, he had just arrived in Alabama on this March 9th night in 1965. What had he been doing that night when he was attacked? Basically, what happened is after Bloody Sunday, there was this call that Dr. King sent out to all the the clergy throughout the country and the different denominations asking for ministers of conscience to come to Selma to support. So people began arriving throughout the day. Reeb actually left from Boston Monday night and arrived in Selma early Tuesday morning. And that day there had actually been a smaller, essentially the same path as the as the march that had resulted in Bloody Sunday, but that was actually led by Dr. King. And that, that march becomes known as Turnaround Tuesday because Dr. King leading the march gets to the phalanx of state troopers at the same place where the beating had taken place. And they say, you do not have the right. And Dr. King knows that he's waiting for the federal judge to give them the right to actually continue the march on to Montgomery. But in the minutia of, of civil rights history, it's a kind of a contentious moment because a lot of civil rights demonstrators had come basically like Reeb from Boston and, and were ready and willing to 
put their bodies, sacrifice themselves essentially. But Dr. King knew the optics of that. And so he turned around. And so the rest of the day, they're sort of hanging out. And later that evening, uh, Jim Reeb gets together with two other Unitarian ministers whom he's, he knows one fairly well and the other is, is just a colleague that he's met a few times. And they go downtown to, to eat dinner, not far from the church where all the civil rights organizing had been happening. Mm. So that's really, that's what had happened that night. They, they asked where to go. And someone from another civil rights organization said, do you want to eat with your kind or do you want to eat with the African-Americans in Selma. Uh, and so they say, we want to, we're here to integrate. We're here to, we're here to fight for African-American voting rights. So we'd like to eat in a black restaurant. Mm. So that's what they do. And word of his condition after he was beaten with two other men uh, traveled very quickly. Just an hour after the attack, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was in the pulpit of the Brown AME Church in Selma, delivering an update on his condition. You know, things happen here today concerning the three Unitarian ministers who were beaten about an hour or so ago. I understand one was uh, so brutally beaten that he had to be rushed to the hospital in Birmingham with a possible brain concussion. So why couldn't he be treated in Selma? When the three ministers were attacked on the street, uh, Jim was, again, hit with his club in the head and, and fell to the ground and then was kicked and punched, and the other men were, were kicked and punched. And then it was over pretty quickly, and so when they, they um, stumbled to a nearby headquarters of a civil rights group uh, where the, you know, everybody there, Reeb's companions and the, and the two people in the office sort of looked at, at Jim, who was, was mumbling and a little kind of out of it and in and out, and um, decided that he needed to see a doctor right away. So they... Because these guys are these are they're all these three these three ministers are white guys, but because they're there in defense of of African American voting rights, they're essentially unwelcome in the, in the sort of white establishment of Selma, including its medical facilities. So they're taken to a nearby health clinic, a black owned health clinic, where a doctor examines Jim and very quickly uh, determines that he needs to see a neurosurgeon. And there is not a neurosurgeon in Selma, and so they. Uh, the closest one is in Birmingham, which is a, a couple hours away. And so they decide he's got to get to Birmingham as soon as possible. And what happens on the way to Birmingham? So they get in this ambulance and they start to drive up the road toward Birmingham. And they're, they're actually followed by, by an onlooker, essentially. And they get, a, they get a flat tire on the way to Birmingham, just right outside city limits, a mile or two outside of city limits. So they turn around um, because the, the radio ambulance, or excuse me, the radio phone in the ambulance does not work. So they, they turn around to a radio station where one of the ambulance drivers had, had worked before um, to use the phone. So they call and get another ambulance who it takes 15, 20 minutes um, um, for them to for them to get the other ambulance there, maybe half an hour at most, um, and then they swap Reeb's body out and 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 get him to Birmingham, just really you know on two wheels almost going around curves because they spent they 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 basically made a trip in a in roughly an hour and a half that would have usually taken over two hours. Um, so they get him to Birmingham, but the, by the time he's here, that an injury like that is so severe and it's it manifests itself in the in the hours after the attack that it was it was almost too late to do anything. They they did perform surgery on him, but he was he was essentially comatose after after the ambulance ride. Mm. And then another minister called Reeb's wife, told her she had to make she should make arrangements to come from Boston to Alabama. She arrived, media flocked in the hospital for an interview, and she did reluctantly agree to speak to them. Here is a reporter speaking with Marie Reeb. Do you think the cause for which your husband came to Selma 
was worth it? I don't feel that I can answer that for myself. I can only answer for Jim that uh, any consequences that might occur did, did merit this. Local civil rights activists told Marie that the world was there watching, and the reporter who covered the story told you he knew then, quote, this is not just some guy getting beaten. Why was this different? The civil rights movement had gained so much attention over the previous years. Uh, you had, you know, if you want to really step back after the after the Montgomery bus boycott, people began to pay attention to, to the plight of civil rights activism and the fight for 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 the dismantling of Jim Crow and then ultimately the fight for voting rights. And you've got 1961, the Freedom Rides, and 1963, the Children's March here in Birmingham. And, and then uh, you have the 16th Street Church bombing, which just outraged so many Americans and could not believe the brutality that, that was happening because of this movement. And really, in March of 65, when Bloody Sunday happens, there are cameramen on the bridge that day. And the way that those images are telegraphed around the world uh, really fundamentally changes um, the optics of the of the of the move for voting voting rights. So the, the eyes of, of Selma, excuse me, the eyes of the world are already re- really looking at Selma. So when Reeb is attacked, he becomes this proxy for everything that's that's wrong with the the southern states essentially stif- stifling the black vote. And so he he manifests himself, and in, in, in so many people later call and refer to him as a martyr. And it really just happens almost instantaneously that this white man's death becomes emblematic of, of a need for a larger structural change. That's Andrew Beck Gracie and Chip Brantley, our Alabama-based journalists and co-hosts of the new NPR podcast, White Lies, which investigates a civil rights cold case and the stories that people have and continue to tell about it. Well, President Lyndon B. Johnson also knew that this was quite a different case. Here he is speaking with one of his advisors. This is from tape of his phone calls at the White House. This minister's going to die, isn't he? Yes, sir. Is he already dead? No, sir. What time do you think he'll die? They tell me that he could stay alive uh, for another uh, 24 or 36 hours under these mechanical things. But, uh, I think he'll probably die early tomorrow morning. I've arranged uh, with the local authorities down there that uh, if when the minister dies, they'll file first-degree murder charges within an hour. You two just dug up some incredible archival audio for this podcast. I'd love to play one more uh, clip. This is First Lady Lady Bird Johnson reflecting on the death of Reverend Reeb. When the news had come that the Reverend Reeb had died, Lyndon and I excused ourselves for a moment a helpless, painful moment. We talked to Mrs. Reeb, but what is that to say? We went upstairs a little past 10, but we could hear the congressional guests still laughing and the music still going below, and out in front, the chanting of the civil rights marchers. What a house, what a life. Well, that was not the end of the president and first lady's attention to this case. They loaned the Reeb family an Air Force plane to travel home to Boston from Birmingham. LBJ then invoked his name when he was proposing to Congress the passage of the Voting Rights Act, expressing outrage over a white man from the North being killed, as there was later with Jonathan Daniels, when we know from EJI research that thousands of African-American men had been and women had been lynched during Jim Crow, hundreds beaten in civil rights actions, so why focus on the death of one white man? Yeah, this is Chip. Um, it's it's you're right. I mean, there are 
thousands of, of, of people killed during that era, black men, uh, black women killed during that era. Many of their names we, won't, we don't know and we'll never know. Uh, and Jim Reeves' life and death is no more, no less important than those lives and those deaths. You know, as, as Andrew mentioned earlier, the, the, the fact that the attention of the world was already on Selma is, is partly to explain uh, why his death led to this outrage around the country. But it's also important to note that just a few weeks before, a, a local black civil rights worker named Jimmy Lee Jackson, who lived in the nearby town of Marion, was uh, was shot by an Alabama state trooper, died um, just a little over a week later, just a week or so before uh, before Bloody Sunday. And in fact, Jimmy Lee Jackson's death really was the, ca- the catalyst that led to the march that would become Bloody Sunday. Mm-hmm. He was shot in mid-February, died in late February, and when he died... Civil rights leaders just felt like we have to do something. We this this is different. We have to we have to act now. And they planned to march from Selma to Montgomery to protest uh, in the Capitol, and that of course would become Bloody Sunday. So Jim Lee, there's a sort of link, you know, between Jimmy Lee Jackson and Jim Reeb. They're very much connected uh, in the story and in time. It's interesting to, to to talk to people who were there during that time who who really thought a lot later about the reaction to Jim Reeb's death and to Jimmy Lee Jackson's death. And locally, Jimmy Lee Jackson's death was a, was a huge deal. It really, again, catalyzed the movement there. Um, but nationally, it, t- it did. It took the death of this white man to really draw the eyes of the country to the effort that was, that was going on in, in Alabama. And this story continues to unfold episode by episode, including the arrest and trial of those who were accused of of beating and actually murdering uh, Reverend Reeb. Who were these three men who were arrested? Two of them were brothers, uh, Stanley Hoggle and, and Naaman O'Neill Hoggle, whom everyone called Duck. And then there was another man, Elmer Cook. Um, and they were car dealers in town. And uh, Elmer Cook was a, essentially a loan shark, um, loaned money to mostly African-American clients uh, and with just extraordinarily high interest rates. Um, and they were, they were kind of for all intents and purposes, sort of thugs in town um, when they, the day after the the day after they were arrested for the attack, the Selma Times Journal actually ran their their rap sheets on the on the cover of the the paper, and I can't remember exactly how many times, but I think it was over it was over twenty five or thirty times that Elmer Cook had been arrested for assault and battery and a variety of other charges. So these folks were not the uh, they were not from you know Sterling families there in in Selma. They were they were ruffians in many ways, um, and and in I think for many people in Selma, it was unsurprising the the amount of white anger that had been unleashed at, during Bloody Sunday that had been seen by the sheriff Clark Jim Clark's uh, posse that, that that had beaten some of those marchers on the bridge, and just the level of animosity that the that these voting these folks advocating for voting rights really represented to the power structure in town. Um, and I think that's that partly accounts for the violence that, that was seen there. There was a ton of harassment and a ton of violence. Um, and it, it had really sort of bol- boiled over by then. Yeah. So the mood in town uh, may not have been like the newspaper um, showing their rap sheets. It was much more protective of the way that life had been. And the three tried for murder um, in 1965 in December of that year. The trial is fascinating, but there wasn't an official trial transcript. First of all, why not? And how did you reconstruct it? Yeah, it's really interesting that, that the, you know, in some ways, the fact that there's not a trial transcript, we, we, 
I think I can safely say we have we have um, chased down every possible lead to find it. it. It in some ways not surprising because it was an acquittal, and, and acquittals often because there's no appeal, there's no there's no imperative legal imperative to keep uh, have it to order a trial transcript. But l- because it was such a high profile case in '65. Uh, There was a lot of press coverage. And also the Unitarians from up north, they sent down two legal observers or or two observers, one of whom was a lawyer, to just basically cover the thing extensively to write their impressions of the trial. Uh, And they're actually really beautiful artifacts, these two two reports that these Unitarians made. They are blow-by-blows of the trial, but they're also just really beautiful portraits. I say beautiful. They're really well-observed, well-written portraits of – the people during that time in Selma and the place in that time. Uh, and then we were able to kind of come up with some grand jury records here and there. We looked through all these different uh, storage sheds and archives and courtroom basements and uh, jailhouse storage units, like everywhere, to kind of piece together as much as we could. The DOJ and the FBI had lots of people on the ground in Selma during this time. At the time, there were still federal civil rights charges looming uh, against uh, against these guys. So the feds were, the DOJ was, was entertaining the idea of prosecuting these guys on federal charges. So they had observers at the trial as well. So we took all of that. I mean, the DOJ file is I don't know, Andy, thousands of pages. That's over a thousand pages. So we, we, uh, we took all of that and we essentially reconstructed the trial uh, using all those, all those materials. Chip Branley, Andrew Beckray, stay with us, co-hosts of NPR's new podcast, White Lies. We're going to continue the conversation after the break about their investigation into a civil rights cold case. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're speaking with the the Alabama-based journalists Chip Brantley and Andrew Beck Grace. Their latest project is a new NPR project called White Lies, which they are co-hosts of. We just heard some of their archival footage and learned about some of their investigation into the, the murder of... Uh, Reverend Reeb from Boston when he was in Selma, Alabama. Three local men in Dallas County were charged with his murder. The eyes of the nation were on them, DOJ people on the ground, newspaper reporters on the ground. But the prosecutor still was told that he had a weak case. This is in a case when three men were beaten on the sidewalk on an evening in Selma. Many people had seen them. And the defense case here was a really interesting one. Can you tell us a little bit about what they claimed? Yeah, it's a, a really a, a kind of a <clears throat> shocking case in many ways. Uh, first of all, the the prosecutor told the told the press that he had no case, uh, despite having eyewitnesses. Very, did very little to to mount a, a strong case in the first place. Even told went so far as to tell another journalist that the only reason he he brought charges to a grand jury is because he knew that the that the national press would be all over Selma if he didn't do it. So he had very little vested interest in getting in gaining a conviction. And then the the defense attorney in this case was one of the best attorneys in in town, and he mounted a very rigorous and and really well argued, uh, despite the the problems with the claims he was making, but a well argued case that the um, not only were these not the men who did it, and he had folks come out and give alibi witnesses, even though all of them were documented to have been on the street that night. One of them was across the street during the attack, and one of them was drinking coffee over here or drinking beer over here, and they were not the guys who did it. The second part of his of his uh, of his defense, though, was the most kind of shocking, and the reason why we I think one of the primary reasons why we dug into the story as much as we did, and that is he he made the claim that the 
that the civil rights movement was in need of a white martyr mm. and that this this attack on Reverend Reeb provided an opportunity that he argued the civil rights movement capitalized on, that there was this incidental attack on Washington Street, and that right after it happened, the civil rights movement itself realized they could they could pounce on this moment and essentially, he, he insinuated, kill Reverend Reeb to gain this white martyr that the civil rights movement needed. It's a really dynamic argument as as incredibly horrifying as it is to make because the, the trial happened in December of 1965. The Voting Rights Act passed in the summer of 1965. So the argument about the, the political necessity to have a white martyr to create the Voting Rights Act would have been very well received by a white audience who thought that that they had been bamboozled essentially by the civil rights movement. Mm. So Reeb's death at that point in December can be seen to to be almost a it's it's like a foregone conclusion that they needed this man, they got this man, and now the the Voting Rights Act has passed. It is um, al- so it's, almost unbelievable. <laughs> it is it, that it was not unbelievable to so many people in 1965 and continues to not be unbelievable to so many people today is the primary reason I think why we tried you know decided to tell this story. And 54 years later, there are still people living. Who knew Reeb? Who knew what? Ha- or who knew what happened to Reeb? Or were living in the county at that time? And and told you what they thought had happened. Here are some of the theories they shared with you today. They say, "Oh yeah, he really wasn't. It was the bad doctors or something like that." Well, you know, did he hit his head on the pavement? Slow ambulances to Birmingham. I think they killed a man on the way to Birmingham. I, I, I just will, us all always will believe it. This idea that I will always believe that they killed the man on the way to Birmingham, sacrificed one of their own to make a martyr. These are the white lies that give the podcast is, at its name. And this is so much about this is the case itself, of course, but it is about Alabama, the South, the United States at that time, and remembering the civil rights movement and Jim Crow. What have you, as sons of Alabama, learned about the way that we remember or the, or the collective memory, how people recount events in their mind. Yeah, I mean, that's what we spend uh, most of our waking hours talking about still as, this, as we finish up this, this this project. But I think the thing, this is Chip, and the thing that for, for me has, has, um, has really become so evident, it's something that I think we all intuit in some way, and we talk about, uh, and, it's, and we, we, we usually talk about it in the abstract, but just how little time has actually passed between 1965 and now. And for anybody born after 1965, as, as Andy and I were, um, you know, it, it, it feels like the distant past unless you've lived it. But it is not long ago at all. And the, the beliefs that people believe then are still here. They haven't been around this specific case. They haven't been challenged, and that's why those 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 beliefs are still here. And I think on a, on a broader level, uh, you know, that the world that we think of as that distant past is still very much with us. It's still very much here in the present. We see it every day, and I think that's this this specific story of Jim Reeb, what happened to him, what happened after he was killed, and the sort of counter narrative that that was created to absolve not only the men who who committed the crime, but the place where the crime happened, that that is, we're, we are very good at doing that in this country. Uh, not just in the South, not just in Alabama. It's easy to think of it as, a, as, a, as an Alabama problem, as a Georgia problem, as a Southern problem, but it's an American problem. There are three episodes left, and you're producing the final episode now. What, what else can listeners look forward to learning about over the course of White Lies? 
Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll pull a, a, an old writer's trick, which is to say you'll have to keep reading to find <laughs> out, right? Of course. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I will say that we we would not have embarked on this project if we didn't think we could have very definitive things to say about what what really happened that night, and if we hadn't tracked down the folks to to tell that story. So I think that's the that's the promise of the show, and I I think we we pull it off. Andrew Beck Grace, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Also with us, Chip Brantley. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Andrew and Chip are co-hosts of NPR's new podcast, White Lies. For more information and to sign up to subscribe to the podcast, you can find that at gpbnews.org. Last year, U.S. retail sales of essential oils topped $133 million. And that number doesn't include sales from multi-level marketers who sell directly to buyers. While the market booms with promises of improved health and pain relief, there are some safety concerns. Georgia Health News reporting found essential oils contributed to two calls per day on average to the Georgia Poison Center. And usually it is children who are being poisoned. Andy Miller is CEO and editor of Georgia Health News, and he joins us to talk about the benefits and risks of essential oils and what they pose to Georgians, as well as a variety of other health topics. Andy, as always, welcome. Good to be here. So it seems like essential oils are pretty much everywhere nowadays, from grocery stores to they're popping up all over on social media. How do we actually define essential oils? What they uh, basically are are highly concentrated extracts from plants. And what they're used for by consumers to improve health, improve mood, relieve pain. Uh, they're inhaled. They're uh, used as ointments and lotions. And as you say, the, 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 the growth of these sales is, is pretty amazing. So given the promises made to improve health or relieve pain from insomnia, arthritis, migraines, does testing bear that out? Well, they're not as tested, anywhere near as as tested as, let's say, a prescription drug, okay? They're not nearly as regulated either. But there has been some research that that shows that uh, some hospitals and clinics use a mixture of ginger, spearmint, peppermint, cardamom for surgery patients to to reduce their nausea after surgery. Uh, There's been research about lavender oil being able to lower stress. There's been uh, some effects, anti-inflammatory effects that have been shown as a result of use of some of these um, essential oils. Uh, Inhaling lemongrass can prevent anxiety, uh, according to some of these. Now, these studies are pretty limited, but they do show that if used as intended, they can have some positive effects. Are they regulated at all by the FDA? They're not. Generally, they are not. And so uh, it's very important for consumers to read the label, take as directed, and if they have any questions, go to a medical professional and ask, should I be using this? Well, this is certainly something, you know, I have essential oil products, but what risks are associated with them? Well, there, there have been, uh, let's, let's focus on adults first. There have been reports of uh, consumers, adults, having chemical burns as a result, uh, allergic reactions to certain essential oils, respiratory distress. So there have been a number of reports of problems. And, 
And in particular in Georgia, but elsewhere, children are most at risk for coming into contact with these oils. Why is that? Well, children have thin skin. Okay, that's one thing, especially young, very young children. And their livers are not mature. So if they rub up, if, a, if an infant newborn rubs up against his or her mom, who is using maybe one of these lotions, they can have a reaction to it. Plus, you have cases, and the Georgia Poison Center points it out, that if these are consumed, if there's a vial laying around and a child, young child, gets into them and, and tastes that could be a serious health problem. Mm. And, and we have an example of a kid who took eucalyptus oil that had to be hospitalized. Well, are there particular essential oils that people and children, as people with children especially, should be con conscious about? Well, there's several. There's camphor, there's lavender, eucalyptus, as I mentioned, wintergreen, thyme, clove. All these, all these uh, particular oils can be a problem if they are taken in the wrong way, particularly by children who are, who are essentially swallowing some of this. So what are the poison centers and other researchers suggest? What, what are the precautions? Even these things that are they're marketed as natural or, or organic, which of course so are poison. So what kind of precautions should parents take? Uh, I would say just keeping them out of out of reach of children, just like they would keep a prescription drug out of the reach of a child, and take as directed, and you know, be conscious of if you have a, a newborn or even if if you're a pregnant mom, you should talk to your doctor about should I use this uh, and could it harm the fetus if I do? Oh, and also breastfeeding. That's something else I read. And that's correct. If if the child, uh, if a lotion's being used and, and the, the infant is, is rubbing up against it, it could be a could cause a severe problem. I'm speaking with Andy Miller. He's CEO and editor of Georgia Health News, uh, making sure children are safer on essential oils. But that's not the only thing we'd like to talk about today. Let's talk about waivers. Recently, last week, announced that Deloitte Counseling, Consulting rather, won the contract to help the state of Georgia develop health care waivers for Georgia's Medicare program and the private insurance market. Here is this is the result of the Patients First Act signed back in March. Here's Governor Kemp upon signing the bill. Through the Patients First Act, we will address Georgia problems with innovative Georgia solutions. We will advance policies that ensure a brighter and healthier future for our state. Well, you spoke with us previously, Andy, about the developing this and a consulting firm working on it. So what is Deloitte's role in all of this? They will put together, Virginia, two waiver proposals for the federal government. Basically, a waiver is a federal approval to change a particular health program, such as Medicaid or the health insurance exchange. Deloitte will develop two, one for Medicaid and one for the health insurance exchange. And they'll have their deadline is basically the end of the year. They have to come up with these proposals and be able, and the, for the state to be able to submit them to the feds by the end of the year. What gave Deloitte the edge in the bidding war for this really big contract? Well, I think it's uh, it, they, the contract was $1.9 I, I think it was basically their expertise. They've, they, Deloitte has helped 13 states develop or implement waivers. Their work, they work with something like 30 Medicaid programs overall, and they have some, some former state Medicaid directors as consultants. 
And uh, the, the state, the Georgia officials who I talked to said experience was probably the number one factor that got them the bid. There has been some murmur of potential direct primary care option for developing the program going forward. What does that entail? That's basically a, a new style of medical care where a patient would give a set amount of money per month to a doctor and there would be no kind of insurance claims processing. It would be that doctor taking care of that patient. And, and the goal would be to kind of simplify that process and make it less administrative burdensome for the doctor so that he or she could see more patients that way or, or fewer patients that way. Uh, and so that's one idea. Another idea is reinsurance, which other states have done, is basically that is compensating health insurers if they have a lot of really high-cost patients that they would get extra money to care for them. Both those ideas are out there. There are other private insurance ideas that are out there that some consumer groups are worried about. And those would be, are they going to take away some benefits that are essential in order to make the price lower? So, so there's all sorts of different things that they, the, the, the waiver process could come up with. Andy, we've got just a couple minutes left, but DeKalb County just received $1.5 million from the CDC to be one of three pilot sites nationwide. This is for testing a federal program to help prevent the spread of HIV. Why was DeKalb selected for this program? Well, one th- I, I have to believe one of the reasons is because simply because the CDC headquarters is based here. And, but, but another is that Georgia has a very high rate of new HIV infections. It's either the leading state or number two. Uh, metro Atlanta is the number three metro area in terms of new HIV infections. So, so this is a real hot spot and, and, and a real good target area for this pilot program. So what does the program entail? Well, it's going to put this money into increased testing. It's going to put the money into keeping people who have HIV in care so it doesn't get worse and it's not spread. And also, it's going to promote or encourage the use of what's called PrEP, which is a a pill that people can take who are at risk of getting HIV to prevent them from getting HIV. And it's a very costly drug, and so I'm sure some of that money will go to defray the cost of that. Okay. Is this part of also the Trump administration's announced program to help spread, help prevent the spread of HIV? It is. They, they have a very ambitious goal to reduce new infections 75 percent in the next five years, 90 percent over the next 10 years. And that, it's extremely ambitious, but it, but it also has... Uh, really kind of excited public health people on this issue because they know what a huge toll HIV takes. We have 60,000 people in the state that are living with HIV right now. Annie Miller, thank you so much for updating us. Good to be here. Annie Miller, he's Georgia Health News Editor and CEO. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer, interns Allison Krausman and Jake Troyer. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Sarah Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for joining us for On Second Thought. We'll be back tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.